Now, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to realize that Jesus was controversial in his day, that he provoked opposition from quite early on in his own ministry. We heard about that earlier. And you don't have to read far to realize that he promises his followers will meet with the same opposition. And he doesn't promise to protect us from it. Instead, he promises to help us in it. And that's because we're not greater than him. We don't deserve to be treated better than our king, our Lord. And it's because when we stand up for him in his strength, his worth and his power are displayed so much more clearly to a sinful world than if we live our lives quietly in a corner somewhere. But... You don't have to be a Christian very long to realize that standing up for Jesus is much easier said than done. It's easy to fear the anger and the rejection of people whom we're up close and personal with because we will feel their wrath in much more immediate ways, won't we? We might be shamed in front of our peers as a hateful bigot or blocked on Twitter. We might be sidelined or even disowned by our wider families, depending on your culture, because you've brought shame on them or you've disturbed the harmony or simply because you've caused too much offense. We might even lose jobs or promotion opportunities because we don't fit with the progressive values of the organizations we work for. And as with Jesus himself and so many of his followers since, human opposition might bring death. Now, we seem a long way from that in the UK, so the possibility is hard to to engage with emotionally. But every year, thousands of our brothers and sisters around the world are counting that cost, especially in Nigeria at present. Not a week goes by where it seems like there aren't 10 or 20 or 30 massacred in another attack on another church or another Christian village. And in today's Bible passage, Jesus clearly wants his disciples to be ready for these possibilities. As we saw last week, the Jewish establishment's hostility towards him had just gone public in a big way. He had called out their serious failures to grasp God's word, but in private. And yet by the end of chapter 11, they are fiercely opposing him in public. And so it will be for all of Jesus' disciples when our words or our lives call the world to repent of sin and to believe that Jesus' cross is the only way to be saved. It will sometimes get ugly. Not always, but sometimes. And how we respond is absolutely critical, as Jesus goes on to show, because nothing less than eternity is at stake, both for us and for our hearers. So let's delve into both the warnings and the encouragement that Jesus gives to his followers here. And as we go, we're going to see how the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
are essentially saying to us, fear God and do not fear. Fear God and do not fear. So firstly, fear the Father and do not fear. Here's the first warning in verse 1. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite originally meant a play actor. It was used of actors in the theatre, people who pretended to be someone else disguising their real selves. That's what a hypocrite was. And that is exactly what Jesus accused the Pharisees of being back in chapter 11. They were very concerned with giving an outward appearance of religiousness with their cleansing rituals and their meticulous tithing and their craving for respectability. But most of them lacked a a deep, heartfelt love for God and for their poor and needy neighbours. So whether or not they realised it, they had actually started living more for human approval than for God's approval. Now, what has this got to do with facing opposition for our faith? Well, it's easy, isn't it, to live our lives for human approval. And if what we fear most is human disapproval, rather than God's disapproval, sooner or later we will give way to opposition and compromise our faith. Perhaps we'll start to play down or even to deny Jesus' most controversial teachings and claims about himself. We'll deny him with our actions. We'll deny him with our words. We might still be able to project an appearance of being religious, that fool most of the world around us, maybe even fools ourselves. We might keep going to church, or at least one that makes its teaching sufficiently palatable to the world. We might keep reading the Bible and praying and being relatively nice by the world's standards, even give money to charity. But we won't fool God with our play acting. Because he sees our hearts even better than we see our own. And what's more, Jesus says in verses 2 to 3 that God will expose that truth for all to see. It will be heard in broad daylight and proclaimed from the rooftops. If not before, then at the final judgment, God will bring everything into the light. Even those words that we whispered in secret only to our most trusted friend. And what does Jesus say God the Father will do with those who have lived more for human approval than for his approval? Look at verse 5. Jesus says, he has authority to throw that person into hell. And the original word he used for hell was Gehenna. It's a name for the valley of Ben-Hinnom outside of Jerusalem where all kinds of rubbish, even the corpses of criminals were dumped and burned. It was also where apostate Israelites burned their own children to their fake god Molech centuries earlier. So Gehenna is a fitting image or metaphor for hell. It's a place of shame, a 
place of fiery destruction where those not fit to dwell in God's holy city are thrown out. And Jesus is warning us in no uncertain terms what God the Father will do with hypocrites whose religion is designed more for human approval than for God's. Now, I don't think we need to be too worried if now and then we give way to cowardice and we cover up our true beliefs. Now and then. We certainly need to repent and ask forgiveness for those moments. But we will not be cast into hell for that kind of failure. What we really do need to be on our guard against is if that fear of man works its way more deeply into the whole course of our lives. It can be like yeast worked through a batch of dough that causes the whole thing to change, to rise, to fill with hot air, if you like, to use Jesus' image in verse 2. And it's when the moments of cowardice become the norm and we're in a settled pattern of living for human approval that we should be really worried. If that is us, I don't think it's many of us here today, I don't know if it's any of us, but if that is us, Jesus warns us to fear God the Father before it is too late. Because the judgment he can mete out in hell is far worse even than being beheaded by Islamic State, never mind being disinherited or blocked on Twitter or losing your job. Fear the Father. Beware of living a double life. But Jesus also gives us some comforting words of encouragement at this point. Did you notice that in verses 6 to 7? He says that even the most insignificant and cheapest creatures available in the ancient market, sparrows, tiny little birds, were remembered by God. Maybe today's equivalent is the tiny little guppy fish in the goldfish bowl on Magdalen Road. Not one of them is forgotten. Such is God's intimate knowledge and care for his creation. And if that's the attention he pays to sparrows, or guppies, how much more does he know and care for us, intimately? Humans, as his image bearers, are worth more than many sparrows, as Jesus says. And God is so attentive to us that he even knows how many hairs are on our heads. Or if that's not many for you and you prefer, he knows how many hairs are in your beard. Or if you need to look deeper still, how many cilia are in your lungs and your windpipe? And if God the Father knows his children so intimately, if he values us so highly, can we not trust him when we meet opposition? Isn't a God that in touch with his creation, able to order the circumstances of our death, couldn't he enable us to face even martyrdom 
with the kind of calm and courage that men like Thomas Cramner and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer did in this very city. And how much more is he able to care for us in lesser situations? What is the worst that can happen? If our employer sacks us or a prominent client refuses to do business with us, God has already determined what our next source of income will be. We only need to prayerfully ask him to reveal it. He simply wants us to acknowledge our dependence on him so that we see clearly when he provides, it is from him and not from us. And perhaps if we spend a while unemployed, maybe he has planned to move the church to rally round, to meet our needs in a greater display of generosity than we have yet seen in this church family. Forget injured pride because we like to be self-reliant. Wouldn't that be a beautiful expression of love in the church if it did that for you or me? Wouldn't it be a privilege to go through such adversity and then to see such beauty in the middle of it? That is how we get to know our God better. And what's the worst that can happen if peers or friends or family reject us? God will have others lined up to take their place, won't he? Including brothers and sisters to mourn with us. Indeed, the best friendships are often formed or deepened through sharing adversity together, aren't they? That's the case with someone who's now one of my closest friends and my daughter's godfather. We, we lived in the same town for less than a year. We didn't really know each other very well when he was unexpectedly forced to move to Wales to the Welsh Valleys for his junior doctor training. But we had so many phone calls over the years since then where one of us was struggling with loneliness or singleness or really difficult relationships or tough stuff at work. And our friendship deepen through those things, even just over the phone, never mind in person, to the point where it's become such a great source of joy and mutual encouragement. That's because we've walked through hard things together. Those who mourn with us can easily become those who rejoice with us too. And that will be true if we face opposition for Jesus. So what is the worst that can happen if the world lashes out? We'll see the Father's care and his closeness in an ever deeper way. That's what. So fear the Father and do not fear. Fear the Father and do not fear. Secondly, fear Jesus and do not fear. Maybe you noticed in verse 9 that Jesus doesn't just warn about the Father's judgment, but about his own. As he makes clear elsewhere, the Father will actually delegate the job of judging the world to his Son. And so Jesus says, whoever disowns me before others will be disowned by 
me, the implication is, before the angels of God. And once again, it's linked to fearing man more than we fear God. But here, Jesus is being much more specific about the offense that has been committed. It's when someone who claims to be a believer refuses to confess publicly that they are with Jesus. Now, I don't think he can mean one-off failures, even if they're quite serious ones, because what does he do when Peter denies him three times? He forgives him, and he reinstates him as an apostle. But, instead, I think Jesus is talking about the Christian who has fallen into a settled pattern of disowning him. Either they've repeatedly distanced themselves from his claims about his own person, perhaps the claim that he is one with God the Father and therefore must be God himself, perhaps the claim that he is the only way to be saved, or else they've repeatedly distanced themselves from a clear part of his moral teaching. Perhaps it's the call to repent of all kinds of sexual immorality. Perhaps it's the call to repent of greed for possessions and love of money and lack of concern for the poor, which is an equally big problem in the West. And by the way, these are not secondary issues. Because if we deny Jesus' teaching, we deny his very person as the Son of God who has the right to order our lives according to his loving way. Now, if we disown Jesus like this, it could be because we fear being disowned by people. And yet we ought to fear being disowned by Jesus so much more. Picture the scene in the heavenly courtroom. The most honorable, good, loving, worthy man who has ever lived is seated in the judge's seat at the front. His approval is far more worth having than our, even our parents or our children's. And gathered round him, watching from the galleries, are tens of thousands of angels. Not chubby babies in white nappies or soppy-looking young men and women with golden hair and golden wings, like on some stained glass windows. But mighty heavenly warriors whose worthiness has been proved through millennia of loyalty and love to Jesus because they refuse to deny his lordship even when Satan and a whole army of angels tried to take heaven's throne for themselves. These are the faithful. And being disowned as a Christ-denying traitor by this courtroom is far more shameful than being dragged up in front of the school assembly for a telling off by your head teacher. It is far more shameful than a scathing column in The Guardian, or The Telegraph, if you prefer. It's far more shameful than having your respectability shattered all over the BBC, as seemed to be happening for Hugh Edwards last week. There could be nothing worse, nothing more final, than the Son of Man saying, away from me, I never knew you. 
with the whole company of heaven watching. So we as Christians need to hear Jesus' warning. I certainly do. I know that fear of man. But there is another reason why it is worth enduring human rejection. Did you notice in verse 8, he gives us a glorious promise. Whoever does publicly acknowledge Jesus before others will be acknowledged by Jesus before the angels of God. Now, don't we all love recognition and approval to some extent? There is something deeply affirming when someone who we respect says, she's with me or he's with me. Like when the best sports person in the class picks you to be on their team. Or when the professor acknowledges the work of an undergrad or a junior research fellow in their latest book. Or when you get asked to be a bridesmaid or a best man or an usher at someone's wedding. Forget the British honours system with its knighthoods and peerages and noble order of the garter and Victoria Crosses. How much more glorious will it be to be honoured by the king of the universe who has never sinned, who is most worthy of our praise and adoration? And how, much, how glorious will that be with the whole company of heaven watching? Beings far better than ourselves, nevertheless saying, you are worthy. Because Jesus has made you worthy. That is what awaits all of us who continue to acknowledge our faith in Jesus and his words before a watching world. So fear the Son and do not fear. Finally, fear the Spirit and do not fear. Now this, this works in a slightly different way. In verse 10, Jesus says he warns against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now blasphemy originally meant to slander someone or to speak disrespectfully in a way that demeaned or denigrated them. In simple language, it is putting someone down unjustly. And as we saw three weeks ago, people were slandering the Spirit's miraculous work through Jesus in his own day by attributing his miracles to Satan. They were at risk of committing an unforgivable sin if they continued in this way. But the risk becomes even greater, I would suggest, after Pentecost. Because while Jesus was on earth, even his own disciples did not fully understand who he was. And that's because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out in full. I think that's why Jesus says people could be forgiven for blaspheming or slandering him as the son of man. In his own day especially, they didn't fully know who they were talking about. But from Pentecost onwards, the Spirit would enable the disciples to see and speak clearly. As Jesus says in verse 11 and 12, the Spirit would speak through them, not least when they stood before courts and synagogues. 
And so the message of Jesus would ring out with a new clarity as the Spirit gave the words and the understanding needed. And it is those who hear the Spirit's message about Jesus after Pentecost who I would suggest are most at risk of blaspheming him. If they hear the message and they continually call it a lie or they say it's demonic or they mock and sneer, they are, forgive, they are committing an unforgivable sin. Some people go a little way down that road but are brought to repentance. The Apostle Paul, I think, is an example of that because he persecuted the church for a short while, but when he met Jesus, he stopped and he was forgiven. But there is only so long that you can continue to slander the Spirit before it becomes settled rejection and there is no turning back. So this is not actually really primarily a warning for believers, but for skeptics and for unbelievers. Now, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, my, my hope is that you're not walking further and further away down that road of settled rejection. Otherwise, my guess is you wouldn't be here. If you are walking towards Jesus, that is great. Please talk to me or James or Charlie or Matt afterwards about how we can help you on your way. But if by chance you are walking further and further away, please beware. Sooner or later, it will become unforgivable. And we have seen what Jesus says about hell already. But if this warning is primarily for skeptics and unbelievers, you might ask, why is Jesus telling this to his disciples? Believers aren't the ones who go around slandering the Spirit, after all. Well, Jesus might be telling them because some Christians, like Judas, would become disillusioned. So they do end up denying Jesus and slandering the Spirit's testimony about him. But perhaps... Jesus wants his disciples to have a care for the people they will be testifying to when they stand before the courts. We see in verses 11 and 12 that the Spirit will give them the words to defend their faith. And so it's actually those who listen who will be in danger of blaspheming the Spirit, depending on how they respond. If you like, it won't actually be the disciple who is on trial. It will be the rest of the courtroom. Now, we might never stand in a courtroom because of our beliefs. But we have all been or will be in those uncomfortable conversations where someone asks us about an aspect of our Christian faith and they don't like the answer we give them. And we might face temporary anger, but we should remember that they are the ones who are in danger of an eternal sin. We should pity them more than we pity ourselves. And that is certainly for me a rebuke that I need to hear. So in, the way, in a way, Jesus' words are a warning to his disciples 
that we would have the right perspective on the people around us, the people who hear the message. Fear for them. But his words, again, finally, are also an encouragement for us. And this is where I want to finish. Because when we face opposition for our faith, we do not do it alone. Not only does the Father see the situation in minute detail and hold us in the palm of his hands, not only is the Son rooting for us to hold our nerve so that he can honor us before the heavenly court, but the Spirit is right there with us, ready to equip us, enabling us to speak. Though we have no idea what we should say, We only need to open our mouths in faith and the Spirit will fill them with words. All we need is the courage to ask his help and take that first step into the unknown. And to illustrate the extraordinary way that the Spirit can speak through very ordinary people, I want to close by sharing a short story from Uh, Richard Wernbrand's book, Tortured for Christ. Now, he was a Romanian pastor who led an underground church in Romania during the communist era. And in the 1950s and 60s, he was imprisoned twice for his faith for 13 and a half years in total and tortured several times. But in this little account, he writes about the extraordinary words of a fellow prisoner a young and very ordinary man called Grecu, who was sentenced to be beaten to death for his faith. This is what he writes. One who led this torture was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, whose name was Rek. During the beatings, Rek said something to Grecu that the communists often said to Christians. You know, I am God. I have power of life and death over you. The one who is in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends on me. If I wish, you live. If I wish, you are killed. I am God. And so he mocked the Christian. Brother Greco, in this horrible situation, gave Rec a very interesting answer. It's not just the Brits, but apparently the Romanians who are capable of understatement, which um, I heard afterwards from Rec himself. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you have said. Every caterpillar is in reality a butterfly if it develops rightly. You have not been created to be a torturer, a man who kills. You have been created to become like God with the life of the Godhead in your heart. Many who have been persecutors like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it is shameful for a man to commit atrocities, that they can do much better things. So they have become partakers of the divine nature Jesus said to the Jews of his time, ye are gods. Believe me, Mr. Wreck, 
your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God, not a torturer. At that moment, Rex did not pay much attention to the words of his victim, as Saul of Tarsus did not pay much attention to the beautiful witness of Stephen being killed in his presence. But those words worked in his heart. And Rex later understood that this was his real calling. Now, those words sound like the kind of thing only Jesus or one of the apostles would come out with, don't they? Who else is that eloquent and can say something so profound? And yet Greco was a very ordinary young believer. Only 60 or 70 years ago. So when faced with opposition, fear God, fear Jesus, and fear for those who hear the Spirit's testimony. But then do not fear. The Father is caring for you. The Son will honour you. And the Spirit will give you the words to say. Let's take a moment in quiet and then let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for brothers and sisters down the ages like Greco, who took to heart not only your warnings but your promises, and who were more concerned for their persecutors than themselves, who spoke by your Spirit beautiful truths that changed lives. And we pray whether in situations big or small, would you make us like that? Help us to trust your word to us today. Amen. Amen. Can I invite the band up? We're going to stand, we're going to sing. He will hold me fast. <laughs>